This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. I actually, Jan, have a rather unique anthology today. It's a collection called Synergy, and it's a publication of the Bayside University of the Third Age. And here to talk about it, I have Tom Valente and Jeff Rolls. So, Tom and Jeff, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Now, Tom, can you briefly outline how this project came about? Well, I'm on, in the writers group and we got together with the art group and we collabor- collaborated on writing stories that go with paintings and paintings that go with stories. And we were in, the writers were asked to submit a poem or a story and the artists were invited to illustrate that poem or that story. And the artists did it the other way around. Mm. Oh, well, that intrigued me, the other way around, to, to inspire from a, from a work of art. But I'm also intrigued by the writing styles. Now, uh, Tom, you have a, a, um, a, a poem entitled Scatter My Ashes. There's also a reflective piece in there called Passing Storm. But Scatter My Ashes on the Water of Half Moon Bay. It's there I'd like to go. It's there I yearn to stay. Death wish, sir. <laughs> what, what are you looking forward or uh, towards that uh, that time in your life, or what prompted that? What prompted it was that I lost my wife to Alzheimer's disease. We lived just close to Half Moon Bay, and she was fifty-four when diagnosed and died died at sixty-one. And Half Moon Bay was our very very favourite place to go, and enjoy and to breathe the sea air and to be happy there. So my thought is that I will join her there one day. But it speaks then to the power of writing in moments like that as well. Yes. What do you get then from writing such personal accounts? It certainly helps with the grieving process. It helps express your desires and your beliefs, if you like, and it just is a very, very therapeutic thing to do, I find. Because you've also got another reflective piece there, um, and basically, um, the, oh, passing storm, that's right, and it's almost like going back over your childhood and along the pier, and so you're almost accounting for a life story there. Yes, Yes, well, I come from a migrant family that fled Europe in 1949 from behind the Iron Curtain. So that is the basis for that story. Yeah. So, again, I mean, how important is it to have that ability to cast your life back over what is really a lifetime? Because Third Age University, mature writers? Yes, but still, it's therapeutic and a catharsis when you get published. Now, Jeff, to bring you in here, good sir, and we're moving the microphone, so that would uh, account for that. Um, the pictures, they seem to be, well, as we've discovered, specifically prompted by the writing. And the one then for uh, Tom's first bit, Scatter My Ashes, a sort of primitive style of, of art there. Uh, yes, it's, uh, I'd describe it as a naive style. Naive. That, that particular painting. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, our group um, 
come from a whole range of different backgrounds uh, and they have a whole lot of different styles. So that's our normal expectation that we'll get a whole range of things. But you've got sketches. Uh, some are almost abstract uh, that's right. in, in their makeup. Realism. I mean, do the artists encourage each other in terms of uh, developing their styles? How do you find that group works? Uh, well, the, the, there's a lot of encouragement. Um, we have a tutor who is very helpful, Nat Silverman, um, and generally speaking, we all pursue our own particular interests uh, and we do have a range of styles, which is what makes it such an interesting group. The, the title we gave the group is Painting for Pleasure. Uh, and the whole idea is that we go and express ourselves and really do enjoy what we do and we can all develop our skills as we go along. And that's pretty well reflected in, in the uh, elements that are in synergy. There's a, a, a wide variety of styles uh, in there. Is it, uh, well, we looked at the cathartic power of writing. Is there a cathartic power in painting as well? Well, I think there definitely is. Um, I think, well, I just speak personally. I find um, when I get the paints out, I find it very relaxing. It's challenging, but you get lost in, 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 in this sort of work and it's, uh, it's wonderful in that sense, I think. Now, some of the other stories in this collection. I mean, Norman Beck's The Boy, seeing death from a child's mm -hmm. perspective, uh, absolutely fascinating. Um, it's a bit of a dig at, at mature age people, parents especially, um, because the boy farewells his yeah. grandfather and seems to know what to say. The, the grandfather is basically uh, in a coma, but knows the boy seems to know what to say and is being discouraged by his parents. But here we have a mature individual, the writer probably a parent himself, and then sort of casting back. How difficult would it be to do that, to, to capture that um, voice of a child? Moving the microphone again. <laughs> it's a good question, and I don't have a, a clear answer to that. Some people find it difficult. Some people find it very, very comforting and, and challenging and, and, as I say, therapeutic. You know, I have a grandson who says to me, Papa, were, were, were there dinosaurs around when you were my age? <laughs> and so, you know, I, being in touch with youngsters is a very, very therapeutic thing. But also then the youngsters' ability to know instinctively what to do, at which the parents have lost. It's, you know, it's fascinating to see how that works. But then... Joe Bissett's sketch, here we go, difficulty of, of interviewing two people with, with microphones back and forward, but Joe Bissett's got a very simple sketch then to accompany that. The, the child has a their back to the viewer and they're looking down a path. Um, yes. the, the inspiration behind that, very... Um, well, it's not naive. How would you describe it then? Um, uh, well, um, Joe is... Her, her sketches are... are quite nuanced in a lot of ways um, and uh, it, it does fit that story beautifully uh, I think and especially because the boy's walking away mm. with his back to you so yeah. it's a, it sort of echoes the message in but the story. there's a path winding down There, there is well. a path into the distance. So That's right. again you know that, that 
direction. So it's telling you the boy's got a future. Now, while we've, you've got the microphone, we'll go to another painting and then work back to the story. But we've got uh, Margaret Boyles Pringle uh, has a story called A House of Sticks. And this one resonates with me because I've seen houses being <laughs> eaten, so to speak. But there's a picture here. Um, and I was actually reminded of um, the sort of Picasso cubism. I don't know whether I've gone too far, but lines and shadow. And it's just mm. simply black and white. Mm. And it's of a house uh, or seemingly of the pieces of a house. I'm just wondering how that was composed. Well, um, I think I think that was... Um I think, I think Margaret wrote it um, in response to the painting. I think that was I think that oh, was so one that... of those ones that was art to words. No, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. It was words to art. Um, it's actually um, quite a complicated um, and beautifully finished painting um, by Janice. Uh, it's a collage. So if you actually look at the the physical painting, um, you can see a lot of texture in it. And so it even means more when you see it in so the flesh, so to speak. In the flesh. We're yes. not getting the, the full impact. But no. the story itself then, a big... Um, yeah, they are knocking down the house next door. A big yellow excavator with hungry jaws is licking its lips. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> and, and this metaphor goes all the way through in terms of something almost, yeah, animalistic is, is taken over the house. But, yes, I've seen it. It's happening so much today which is <laughs> is disappointing to see we might end up with one more because we're it's amazing how quickly time flies but i'm going to read a poem now this poem is by jeffrey dobbs uh it's on page 26 there uh still life with irises but i'm also interested in ross brown's painting which is intriguing as well Coming into this room, out of the sheer, pure light that spills from branch to leaf and leaf to flower, to fanfares of birdsong, coming then into this twilight room and seeing at its dim-shadowed centre suddenly a glow of blue burst into blue-yellow tongues of flame, irises severed from that living light, latticed curtains, motionless, spun sunlight into shining threads around the glistening vase that grasped within its still, cold, crystal depth a fascist of green stems. All was dim and still within that silent cell as if time had slunk away, defeated. The flowers, his only triumph, these, his glorious, flaming, living dead. So, the, it's a psychedelic painting that goes with that. It is. It is a psychedelic painting. It's um, Ross does uh, some really, uh, really interesting, quite fine work. Um, it's watercolour uh, and ink or pen, uh, and uh, it's not a particularly large work, but it certainly suits the painting. And in this particular case, the words came first, and the painting was in response to the words. Right, and just the art of poetry. I mean, Tom, you've got. Uh, a poem to begin with, but how many poets are there in, in the group as such? Frankly, I don't know. <laughs> Several of us will will give it a go every now and then, but um, I suppose half of us, there's 22 in the group, and I suppose half of us would occasionally submit a poem for review by our, our um, brethren. Yes, yeah, because there's, there's an instinctiveness in, in the way people 
express themselves. Some find it easier in prose, some find it easier in verse. And, um, yeah, trying to find that natural voice. But, um, yeah, I mean, it must be an enjoyable time for you all to be in the group. How often does the group meet? The group, our group only meets once a month. We have a word of the month and we write either a story or a poem to meet the the meaning of that word and then we review each other's work we're allocated and 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 then once a month we meet and we all review each other so you'd be exchanging before you meet um yes we do written in a written in a format and then when we meet we, we talk through and guess what? We stay friends. <laughs> a very challenging thing to do at times, but a fascinating account and to be encouraged in terms of people finding their voice, finding their artistic talent, be it in painting or words. The collection is called Synergy. It's a release by Bayside University of the Third Age. So Tom and Jeff, thank you very much for coming in and talking with me today. Our pleasure. Thank Our you. Pleasure. Well, we're going from synergy to historical fiction and that has to have characters that are of the time. And good historical fiction requires authors to do a lot of research even before they can insert the character into the plot. Natasha Lester has done this seamlessly with her big book, The Disappearance of Astrid Bricard. Welcome to Melbourne, welcome to 3CR and welcome to Published or Not, Natasha. Oh, it's so lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. There are three time frames and three generations of women. What do they all excel in? <laughs> so in terms of the three time frames, we have one time frame centred around a woman called Mitza Bricard that lasts from 1917 to 1947, covering the war years, the 1920s and just that very early post-war period. Then we move into the 1970s with Astrid Bricard, where we're looking at the youth quake, the women's movement, the March for Equality, the Vietnam War protests, the start of disco. And then we finally move into 2010 in the contemporary storyline with Blythe Bricard, who is stuck in a freezing cold chateau with her ex-husband and ex-family-in-law for three weeks. <laughs> There's a quote from the book. Strange world of fashion where the customers are largely women, but the people in charge are men. So we'll go back to that Paris now, especially during World War Two, because people may not know this, but the whole fashion world may have moved to Berlin. Yes, that's exactly right. The Germans were very eager to move all of the key industries in Paris to Berlin during the war and fashion was one of those. They had a, an entire committee established to do that and it was all thanks to one man named Lucien Lelong who was the head of the Couturiers Association at the time if you like who stubbornly refused to move it and he made things as difficult as possible and some look back at him and say perhaps he was a collaborator because he did work with the Germans, but he worked with them to keep Parisian seamstresses and designers in work during those war years when it was so difficult for so many Parisians. And of course it was, because any woman who was successful in anything was rather tainted at that time. Absolutely. The hardest thing was the fact that women had to survive during the war. So many of the men were away fighting or in prisoner of war camps. So it was the women who faced the Germans on a day-to-day -day basis. And to survive, sometimes it meant some tiny form of collaboration, because if it meant 
feeding your children and your mothers and your sisters and your extended family or ignoring a German, you would probably choose to feed your family. And then after the war, the repercussions of that were terrible. Through this time, and we start with Mitzi Picard's history prior to World War II, but we're not going much into it because there's too much in this book. <laughs> she was working working with, working under, working how, would you call it? So in history, Mitza has been deemed Christian Dior's muse and she is associated with all the things that people tend to associate with, with muses being kind of hypersexualized, someone who didn't wear much in the way of clothing, someone who was a bit of a temptress. But if you actually look at the historical records, there's a very different story lurking there waiting to be discovered. But it's the photograph, the iconic photograph. And I'm going to ask Natasha to read from page 14. Just and imagine this photograph. Okay. Mitz has been photographed by everyone from Avedon to Beaton. This is the image which encapsulates the famous muse. Mitz is wearing a fur coat, body leaning towards the camera. A long strand of pearls dives into her cleavage and the coat has slipped down her arm, bearing the tops of her breasts to the rim of her areola. She has a smile on her face that is most definitely come hither. Say the word muse and everyone thinks scarlet woman. Sure muse in fur, jewels and bared skin, and everyone thinks whore, or worse. Muses are the kind of women who don't even get paid for all the sex they put out there. Instead, they crave it. Well, this is the image we have of her, and this is the one that's carried down, except for your research, or a lot of research that's gone into it, the real woman behind this, who really was much, so much more than that. Oh, absolutely. And it's really heartbreaking to me that when I found an article that definitively declared that Mitza was the second most important on the Christian Dior staff, second only to the great man himself, and that she was Christian Dior's first assistant designer, and that actually her name should have been in the back of every single Christian Dior gown, along with Christian Dior's. But how do we get from the place where a woman who was so important to the making of the new look, which revolutionised fashion, yet she's become known as the scarlet woman, the muse, the whore. Yeah. What I really liked about that and what didn't come out, in, even in that reading, is she was over 40 years old when that photo was taken. Exactly. And, you know, this is a woman who sort of knows herself and knows the power. Anyway, a lot about the fact in that, but you also fictionalised just a little bit of what she may have done through the war. Now we're going to, I'm, I'm sorry Natasha, too much in this book, we're going to move straight into her daughter. Her daughter Astrid grew up in America. What did she think and feel about her mother? So Astrid is Mitz's daughter and she believes the stories about her mother because those are the stories that appear in print. They're in all the newspaper articles, they're in all the non-fiction books about Christian Dior. So in the same way that I believed all of those stories initially about Mitza, Astrid believes them too. And so she comes to Manhattan in 1970, determined not to be amused, but determined to be a fashion designer and to break the Bricard curse, if you like, of being the muse. She does find fa fame quite quickly, but just not quite for what she'd hoped to become famous for. And the other aspect of this is she always wonders why? Wasn't she a good enough daughter to be kept? And this is another thread that comes all the way through this book. It's at this fashion school that she meets a guy called Hawk, a, a fashion designer. He's a guest lecturer. 
Well, what happened in the first meeting? The first time Hawke and Astrid meet, it's in a classroom and they begin to accidentally together design a silver lame dress that goes down in history and becomes the defining moment in Astrid Bricard's life, but not necessarily for the creation of that silver lame dress. There's a photograph taken of her dancing on a table at a nightclub and Hawke has his hand on, on her bottom <laughs> and it seemed to be, uh, what can we say, uh, perhaps bear. So she's written up, you know, by a, a journalist, like, just like her mother, flaunting herself and forgetting her underwear. Now, where there's a lot of fiction in this book, this is John Fairchild. You wrote him up as a horrible, spiteful journalist. And he really was. <laughs> he absolutely was. I was astonished. So he was the editor-in-chief of Women's Wear Daily, which was the seminal fashion trade publication for many, many years. And, and he was in charge of that. And so he influenced the way in which new fashion designers were perceived by the industry and by the consumers. And he had a particular policy of casting people aside. There was a designer named Pauline Trigere who he said was never allowed to be mentioned in Women's Wear Daily. So as a designer, if you're banned from the biggest trade publication, how do you then make your way through that? He had an in and out column and he would declare women wearing trousers were out. He hated women who wore trousers. He didn't think women should ever be photographed. He would be horrified if anyone photographed his wife because she was someone that for him and he didn't want to share her with the rest of the world. And so as a female fashion designer, being photographed wearing trousers was like a red rag to a bull with John Fairchild. When you think those are such small things, they shouldn't matter at all, but they really did matter back in the 1970s. And the surprise for some of the younger readers was that in many offices there were rules. Now, I remember this too, that women were not allowed to wear pants to work. Absolutely. <laughs> Even in the 1970s, there were many restaurants that would not let women in the doors if they were wearing trousers. Mm. And so one woman, I, I wish I could remember who it was, she was something of a celebrity. She decided, well, if I'm not allowed to wear my trousers, I'll take my trousers off and just wear my underwear in because now I'm not breaking the rules. <laughs> <laughs> so it's back to fiction. Astrid and Hawk. So what other fashion came out of his shop and sold like wildfire. So I use a number of different references throughout history in terms of Hawk Jones's fashion design career. Um, one of those is Bianca Jagger's infamous wedding tuxedo. Mm. He also designs uh, a number of pairs of bright green hot pants that take off through his store. And it was just, I was really interested in the way that in the 1970s, fashion, art, culture, protest movements, fused together into this moment where what was happening in society was very much reflected in the way people were dressing and I wanted to explore that in the novel. Well, another quote from your book, Astrid wanted to design clothes that give women power, not for a man. And she wanted to be acknowledged for her own creativity, not as Hawke's muse. But they were the celebrity couple and their lifestyle was just as wild with nightclubs and parties. And then there was the French versus American fashion designer show at Versailles. The book starts here. What happened to Astrid? 
So at the start of the book, we see Hawk in the Hall of Mirrors at the Palace of Versailles. He's about to do battle against the French for the title of fashion capital of the world, which is a pretty challenging thing to do in the land of couture, which is where couture was invented in Paris. And he sees on the floor of the Hall of Mirrors in the Palace of Versailles a bloodied white silk dress, which is one of Astrid's gowns. And he knows at the start of the book that the fact that that dress is lying there covered in blood means that Astrid is dead or gone. And he is not sure, and the reader is not sure, for most of the rest of the book, which of those things is true. (laughs) And I'll just remind people... The author is Natasha Lester, and the book is called The Disappearance of Astra Bricard. Now, into the present times, the 33-year-old Blythe Bricard always has always known in the media as Astrid and Hawke's love child. At 13, she'd seen a movie about her parents, and it was called The Girl in the Silver Dress, of two, quote, coked-up dopeheads screwing in the nightclub. So she's 33, she's got two kids and she's got a broken heart. But she's got a big decision and this is now. This is where clothing is the biggest piece of landfill as waste. What's her decision? What does she want to do? So she wants to experiment with reusing and recycling vintage fashion and making them into brand new pieces. Um, You're right. Fashion is the second biggest cause of landfill in the world. Australia, per capita, is the largest producer of fashion waste in the world. And my own daughter is a big sewist. She remakes a lot of clothing herself. So Blythe was in part inspired by my daughter. And I'd love to see a world in which we didn't consider clothing that we no longer had a use for to be useless. In fact, those things can be remade into quite amazing pieces. And I also love the idea of gowns from decades ago that have stories in their bones being remade and those stories being rewritten by later years as they become made into new pieces. So we've got the fashion. Now, we've spoken about the use of iconic photos. And, you know, when you think about Marilyn Monroe or Audrey Hepburn, we assume that their characters are from those photos and it's the Marilyn with the dress up, Audrey looking Tiffany-like. I'd like Natasha to read from the last, from page 384, because it's the real people behind that. Astrid's eyes glisten with tears and pain. She takes a deep breath. I thought that if I took myself out of the story, it would end by itself. But stories never end. The tellers just find another girl to ruin with words. How many girls ruined with words are strewn across the world? How many women caught in the line of a song, in a dress, in a painting, in black type on white paper, frozen in oil, in thread, in a C major chord? But nobody, no woman, is one note, one colour, one fine strand of silk. We've concentrated on three women. There's the men... There's Velvet, who has her own problems. (laughs) She wants to be a designer, but... Yes, it was a really interesting world. It was hard for women, hard for women of colour to make a difference in that time. It was very true that many talented women of colour in the fashion industry were... I mean, Jackie Kennedy, whose wedding dress was made by a woman called Anne Lowe, called her in the press a coloured designer. She didn't even name her at that time. They were cast into the roles of models and mannequins showing the clothes, but not, again, being the ones creating the clothes. 
we've concentrated on the women. But there were men, there were husbands, there's fathers, there's really good characters. They show their frailty and strengths. Did you have a favourite? Favourite character? A oh, male character. Well, I, I did love writing Hawk and that oh. was mainly because he was such a gift from the writing muse. I say the writing muse gifts you one thing per book and sometimes it's a plot point, sometimes oh. it's a setting. In this book it was the character of Hawk Jones. Yep. He had a real substance to him. Natasha Lester's historical fiction is of the male-dominated fashion industry and the difficulties of three women over three generations wanting acknowledgement of their creativity while also wanting to be a better mother than their own in The Disappearance of Astrid Brickard. Well done, Natasha. Thank you so much. And I was talking with uh, Tom Valente and Jeff Rolls, who are now both looking for their muse uh, to take back to the uh, Bayside University of the Third Age, uh, and Synergy was their anthology. Thanks, Jan. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.